Welcome to Ragbags Bonus Bag. My name's Frank Burton. Here's part three of the audiobook version of the first Ragbag novel, Everything I Am. Things are getting interesting. Don't forget to buy a copy of the paperback version from Amazon and give it to someone you love, or maybe someone you don't really like, but you think they might like it. You are my missionaries, guys. I'm placing my trust in you with this. All power to the Ragbag Alliance. Now here's Everything I Am, Part 3. Chapter 15 That evening, when Eggnog had gone back to his hotel, I decided to call Uncle Claude. I'd learned a few things about my dad that day, some of which had been very interesting, but these discoveries had raised even more questions. The more I questioned my mum, the more confusing her answers became. Uncle Claude was, at least, a tiny bit easier to understand and less likely to be drunk. Hi, Uncle Claude, I greeted brightly when he answered, just wondering how it's all going. How what's all going, said Claude. I don't know, life in general, business, that sort of thing. What do you want, Frank? Oh, well, you know, I'm still looking into what happened to my dad and everything. Is that why you sent a traffic warden round to my office? What traffic warden? Don't pretend you don't know. You want to know this, Frank, but I have an irrational fear of traffic wardens. Really? I said. I don't even drive. Something about them gives me the heebie-jeebies. I couldn't help laughing. It's not funny. I just like <laughs> I like that expression, heebie-jeebies, I said. In any case, Frank, please don't try and pull a stunt like that again. I know you want to know what happened to your dad. Actually, I don't, I said. I just want to find out more about him. Did he ever mention Nimble Land to you? For a while, it was all he'd talk about. Really? When we were kids, seven or eight, he'd draw all his maps and illustrations of the creatures that lived there. It was a whole world he created, just for his own amusement. I found some drawings in his house, I said. They weren't from childhood, they were recent. One was on the back of an envelope. Yeah, said Claude. He used to draw them at work as well, just idly on his desk on bits of scrap paper. He didn't make a big thing out of it, but I do think it was important to him somehow, like part of his private little world. We've all got one of those, I suppose, a place that we go to in our minds that's just for us. Well, I think Nimbleland was his place. And why all the collecting, all the mountains of stuff he's got piled up in that house? Why did he keep all of those things? I have absolutely no idea, said Claude. I've never understood that about him. I spent a few hours at his house yesterday just rooting through stuff. It took me a while to work this out, but every single piece of junk my dad collected was broken in some way. It's like he was attracted to broken things. I said that to my mum. She didn't understand what I meant, but you might. It feels like it's supposed to be a metaphor for something. Are you saying your dad was actually creating 
One big work of modern art? That would explain a few things. I think perhaps that's how he saw those things, I said. He saw them as individual works of art, and therefore these huge mounds of junk aren't junk at all. They're my dad's art collection. Well, I like that idea. Yeah, I said, so do I. It's good to talk to you, Frank. It's good to talk to you too. We should meet up sometime. It's been a long time. You were still a boy, probably. Just out of interest, the way I'm talking to you now, do I sound like your brother? Claude made a little squeak, which I recognised as his thinking sound. Uh, It's interesting you should say that, he said. You don't, as a matter of fact. You sound very different. It may just be the accent. He was from the South and all that. But actually, your dad's accent changed an awful lot since we were kids. I kept hold of mine. That's the sort of person I am. Your dad was different. His voice changed depending on who he was talking to. He didn't just modify his accent when he moved up north. We had this Spanish bloke in the office for a while. Jesus Christ, your dad. You should have heard him discussing the weather with this fella. Imagine your dad with a Spanish accent. I laughed. <laughs> I, can't. I can imagine that very clearly. Claude laughed along. This is nice, this is nice. You're right. Did I ever tell you about the time? Where's the flat? I said casually. What? The flat, you know, the secret one. I remember the other day, it's on the seventh floor. And I remember the view from the window very clearly. But I don't fancy breaking in there. Especially if one of your mates happens to be there at the time. Doing whatever it is they do there. Might be a little bit embarrassing for them. Claude made his thinking noise again. Frank, he said. If I didn't know better, I'd say you were threatening me. I am threatening you, I said. I'm sorry, Uncle. I don't want to do this, but I feel like I have to. I feel like I have to find out more about my dad. Why? said Claude. Have you actually thought about that, Frank? Have you actually considered why this is so important to you? Yes, I said. Yes, I have. And I'm afraid to say it's not a particularly noble cause. There's probably a name for something like this. But I couldn't tell you the technical term. Let's just put it this way. Do you read a newspaper, Uncle? I don't have the time for all that. Do you watch the news on the TV? Well, I'll have it on in the background sometimes. So, let's say you've got it on in the background. There's a story about some kind of minor alteration to our everyday lives. Like they've changed some bit of legislation about food packaging or something. And there's a medical professional being interviewed and she's droning on in mind-numbing detail about this bit of legislation versus some other bit of legislation. Then they interrupt this story to bring you news that a mass shooter has mowed down 17 people in a shopping centre. How would you react to these two stories? Well, I like this, Frank, said Uncle Claude. It sounds like one of those uh, moral dilemma type questions, like when you're like, who would you save from drowning, your father or a woman who can cure cancer, that sort of thing. 
Uh, it's not a moral dilemma, I said. I'm just wondering how you'd react. Well, I'd most likely pay very little attention to the story about food packaging, and then I'd prick my ears right up when it came to the mass shooter. Now, of course you would, I said. Everyone would, because the mass shooter is considered the more important story. People have lost their lives in a horrible way, whereas the food labelling seems to have little impact on anyone. Now, let's look at that scenario again. Let's say the woman in the first story, the scientist being interviewed about food labels, is your mother. In the next story, the mass shooter is your father. Would you still react in the same way? Well, yes and no, I suppose. I'd make sure to pay attention to the food labelling story because it's my mum and everything. But I'd still pay more attention to the story about my dad because he's done something much more extreme. In a way, I said, that kind of answers your question about why I'm interested in my dad. He's done something extreme in his own way. Not killed anyone, I hope. But he's done something that demands people's attention. Why do you say it's not a noble cause? Because it's not, I said. A noble cause would be ignoring the mass shooter and paying attention to the food labelling. It could well be the case that my mother was being interviewed on the news because she's the person responsible for getting that legislation pushed through and it's all about clearly labelling packaging to protect people with potentially fatal allergies and as a result of her campaigning, countless lives have been saved much more than the 17 lives my father has thoughtlessly taken out and yet my dad's getting all of my attention despite the fact that he's far less interesting than my mother is. Is this still a hypothetical scenario? Yes, but what I'm saying is there are tons of things I don't know about my dad but also there's tons of things I don't know about my mum and instead of trying to learn more about the parent who's right here under my nose, I'd much rather be chasing after the one who disappeared. And it all comes down to this idea of what makes the bigger story, the man who ran away or the woman who's left behind. It's my firm belief that my dad's story is no more important than anyone else's. Everyone has a story to tell and everyone's story is important. In that case... Why are you so interested in your dad's story? Because I'm a hypocrite, I said, and I like a good mystery. I think there's more to it than that, said Claude. He was your dad. You have every right to know what he was like. But you're not telling me. Because it's better that you hear it from someone else. Hear what? What's it? I made a promise to your dad that I'd keep hold of his silly little secrets. And promises mean something to me, Frank, they really do. Your old man used to waffle on sometimes about how promises are manipulative contracts, but I've always disagreed with him on that. I think it's a question of honour. And at the end of the day, he said to me, don't say this, don't say that, and I have to respect that. Also, That's why I can't tell you anything about this flat of ours. We have this agreement, a formal one actually, it's all written down. It's an agreement that none of us will ever talk to anyone else 
about that flat. Oh, what? I said. What do you mean? I mean, what would the consequences be if you told me where the flat is and gave me the keys? I wouldn't do that. Why? What does it say in this formal agreement of yours? Is there a financial penalty or something? You won't be breaking any laws and I presume this document of yours isn't legally binding. We considered having a lawyer look at it, said Uncle Claude, but we preferred not to have any outside people involved whatsoever. This is really starting to sound dodgy, Uncle Claude. There's no reason it should sound like that. There was absolutely no illegal activity. That was clearly stated in our agreement. So what was it, a love nest? Absolutely not. That's another rule. If anyone wanted to cheat on their wives or partners, they weren't allowed to do it at that flat. I know for a fact that at least two members of the original group were conducting extramarital affairs and both of them agreed they keep it away from the flat. Can I see a copy of the document? I couldn't possibly do that, Frank. Don't even ask me. Why, is that stated in the document too? It's a secret document, that's the point. But is there anything on that document that states that the document itself can't be shared with any third parties? I'd have to check it over. Sounds to me, I said, rather victoriously, that you should have got a lawyer to check it over after all. The document is my business, OK. I'm just looking for a loophole here. I think you want to help me, Claude, but you can't because of all this loyalty stuff. And it's helpful that it's all written down because the rules you're adhering to are right there in black and white. And if there's a loophole there, I think you'd be more than happy to point me in the right direction. So for starters, if there isn't anything in that document that states that it can't be shared with any third parties, I think you would really like to share that document with me. I have a good friend who's a solicitor. He'd be happy to review it. And together we can come up with a whole bunch of loopholes. And then we can all be happy. You have a good friend who's a solicitor, said Uncle Claude. Tell me it's not that Muppet who represented you in court. It's not, I said quickly, and we don't talk about him. OK, this is a different friend. Well, I'll have to look into it, Frank. I'll dig it out. I'll see what I can do. That's the best I can do at this time. Thanks. That's all I need to hear. You're an honourable man, Uncle Claude. That's very nice of you to say, Frank. Well... I'll let you go and take a look at your paperwork. Before you go, he said, I just want to say that I know what your dad was like as a father. I know that you hardly ever saw him and that was all his fault and no one else's. And I just want to say that if I was in his shoes, if you were my son, I'd have made sure I'd spent every moment I could with you. If I was your dad, I'd have never gone running off into the sunset with no care for anyone else. But I'm not your dad, so there's no point going into that, is there? I just wanted to let you know, but I don't know. I'll see you soon, I said. Yeah, he said. 
I'll see you soon, Frank. Chapter 16 I slept really well that night. With everything that had gone on that day, I needed a good rest, so that's what I gave myself. I slept in until noon. No sign of Noddy. I waited inside the whole day, but he didn't show up. I needed to buy some food from the shops, but I was worried that Noddy might turn up while I was out, so I made do with the limited stocks I had in the flat. I had boiled rice and peanut butter for lunch, and same again for dinner. I'd never tried boiled rice and peanut butter before. I liked it. It was really nice. I still eat it sometimes, regardless of how well stocked my fridge is. Seriously, try it. Boiled rice and peanut butter. You're welcome. Noddy didn't arrive the next day either. I wasn't willing to move on to the next stage in the investigation without him. Inevitably, my mind started wandering. I was supposed to be looking for a job and getting my benefits sorted out. I'd been too distracted by trying to find out about my dad to think about any of that stuff. I thought about Uncle Claude's line of questioning over my motivations for looking into what happened to my dad. It hadn't yet occurred to me that this whole investigation was triggered by me not wanting to engage with the practicalities of adjusting to life outside prison. I'd only been in there for six months, but lots of things had changed as a result of my conviction. Finding work was going to be harder than it used to be. I had some money stashed away, which meant I'd be fine for a while, but it wouldn't last long. I slept really badly that night. The following morning, I logged into my emails and found a message from Uncle Claude with an attachment. My pulse started racing. This was it. It had taken a couple of nights, but Claude had agreed to share the document with me. I opened the attachment, a scanned PDF. It went on for several pages, all handwritten. I recognised Claude's handwriting from his Christmas and birthday cards. Even though I was kind of familiar with it already, it remained barely legible. I was tempted to reply to Claude's email and ask him to type it up for me, but I got the impression that in Claude's mind he'd already done me a massive favour and asking for anything else could turn him cold. I was sure that between us, myself and Noddy could figure out all the wording. I printed it off. Noddy arrived at my door later that morning, dressed in a business suit with impeccably groomed hair. He introduced himself as Rupert. Hello, Rupert, I said. Come on in. Rupert laid his briefcase on my living room carpet and opened it up to reveal a transparent plastic bag containing a small black oblong. What's that? I said. Don't touch it, said Rupert. I'm just showing you before I send this to a specialist contact of mine. But what is it? This, Rupert declared, is Olaf's mobile phone. My pulse quickened for the second time that day. How? It was easy enough to find his address, said Rupert. There is indeed a river behind his house. I went down there with a pair of waders and a large fishing net. Well, Eggnog did. 
would have done it myself, but I don't like getting my suit dirty. I applaud your efforts, I said, but won't this be totally destroyed by now? It spent a good couple of days submerged in water. We'll see, said Rupert. This contact of mine is very good. If there's a way of retrieving the data on this phone, he's the man for the job. I'm glad you came back, I said. I was worried I'd have to continue on my own. Noddy's mask slipped for a second and he flashed me a cheeky little wink. Then Rupert was back. I had a business to attend to, he said. Yes, I said, it certainly looks like it. Rupert offered a curt nod. Anyway, I said, I've been making progress on my own. I told him about the phone call with Uncle Claude and the document he'd sent me. Actually, I added, I felt a bit sneaky doing this, but I recorded the call. I can send you an MP3 if you have an email address. I do indeed, said Rupert. It's rupert.pilcher at harrowassociates.com. Harrow Associates, I said. What's that? It's a work thing, solicitor's firm. You're a solicitor? Indeed. That's handy. I told Uncle Claude I was good friends with a solicitor, but I was just winging it, trying to get some answers. On that subject, said Rupert. I would very much like to cast my eye over this document of Claude's. Cast both eyes over it if you like, I said. I whipped it off the computer desk and stuck it straight in his hand. Thank you, said Rupert. He read through the first page briefly. Have you read this yourself? he said. I can make out maybe 50% of the words. It would be handy if you are able to decipher the other 50 if there's any words we don't recognise, there's always educated guesswork. Rupert spent around half an hour sitting on the beanbag in silence, staring at Claude's wonky joined-up writing. I'll have my secretary type all of this up, he said. Very interesting and very useful, I would say. Does anything strike you in particular, I said. Yes, said Rupert. This edition on the final page, don't look in Frank's box. I've noticed that Claude writes the letter X as though it's a double L. So really, it says don't look in Frank's bowl. But you've mentioned this before, haven't you? Claude was talking about members of the group and what they got up to in the flat. Omar with his car parts, Graham with his watercolours. Claude with his stamp collection and Frank with, I finished the sentence for him, whatever he keeps in that box. I noticed there's a later edition dated 2001 which states, don't look in Sheila's case. Any idea who that is? No, I said, but Claude did say the group's members have changed over the years. Refreshing to see a woman in there, to be honest. I'll see if my secretary can confirm this or not, said Rupert. But there doesn't seem to be any reference to a Peter Bennington in there. Well, most of them aren't mentioned by name, I said. Looks like the only time a group member's name is mentioned is when they have a specific request. We know that Peter Bennington was a member of that group, 
but it looks like he didn't have particular requirements. Actually, said Rupert, there's no time like the present. Let's listen to that recording right now. Perhaps I can spot some subtle reference to our friend Peter that you may have missed. Do you think he's the key to all this? I said, adding an additional question in my head as to what I meant by the word this. I think various members of the group, prompted by your father, have agreed to maintain silence on the subject of Peter Bennington. Their reasons for doing so are unknown, so perhaps Peter Bennington is, as you say, the key to all of this, or perhaps Peter has secrets of his own which are unrelated to anything else. We won't know until we find out more, and trust me, Frank, someone will cave at some point. They always do. That's reassuring, I said. I turned the volume on my computer up to maximum and played the recording through the speakers. Pause it there, said Rupert after five minutes. It was the part where Claude was talking about honour and my dad's silly little secrets. What do you think Claude is referring to here, said Rupert. I have no idea, I said. My best guess would be whatever he kept in that box of his. But what could that possibly be? What could someone keep in a box that no one could possibly know about? I shudder to think, said Rupert. But my instincts are telling me Frank Senior's silly little secrets have nothing to do with that box. For one thing, I get the impression Claude has no idea what your dad kept in that box. All this talk of honour and the contract, it seems like the only person that knows what's in that box is your dad. I also have a feeling that box is still there, in that flat. And because the only way to enter that flat is to become a member of that group, and because all group members are obliged to sign that contract, a contract which clearly, or perhaps not so clearly states, don't look in Frack's box. No one will ever see what's in that box. But as I say, the box is not the answer. It's not the silly little secret that Claude was referring to. If we can safely assume that Claude doesn't know what's in that box, we can also assume he never described this particular secret as silly. He's used that word deliberately to refer to something else, some other secret of your dad's that he knows about and he specifically agreed not to speak about to anybody else. And because the secret has nothing to do with the box, I think we ought to assume your dad's silly little secret relates to something outside of that flat. I'm thinking of something your mother said now. Is she all that reliable? I said. She was pretty drunk by the end. Sometimes people need a drink to tell the truth said Rupert, but actually I'm thinking of something your mum said before she started drinking. She was talking about when your dad first went missing. She said, and I quote, I'd assumed he'd been working or gambling or staying at his secret flat or something else. That's right, I said, she did say that, didn't she? And right there, said Rupert, we have yet another clear distinction between Frank Senior's secret little flat and his 
something else. So what we have here, I said, are two statements, one from my mum and another from Uncle Claude. One refers to his silly little secret and the other refers to something else. And it seems reasonable to suggest that both of these refer to the same thing, whatever it is. I can't help thinking it's something really obvious, I said. Something right in front of us that we haven't considered yet. Do you think he was having an affair, said Rupert. I shook my head with surprising vigour. Is it really that unthinkable, he said. I just don't think he was. Occasionally, when I was a teenager, he'd sit me down and we'd have these man-to-man chats, birds and the bees, all of that stuff. And every time, he'd make a point of mentioning that he'd never been with another woman apart from my mum. He was really proud of that fact for some reason. And yet, we know from your mum's account of your parents' marriage that they hardly even saw each other. How did she describe it again? She said they weren't really married. I said they were just two people who happened to have the same name. Pretty scathing. Did they sleep in the same bed? I shrugged. You don't know, said Rupert. As far as I know, my dad slept on the couch. Most nights he'd come in after midnight, slumped straight on there. He'd be gone again at the crack of dawn. What I'm getting at here is that your parents clearly didn't have a physical relationship do you really think they were both celebrate an affair just doesn't seem all that likely after the lectures i had about my dad staying faithful why did he bother bragging about it if it wasn't even true wasn't it your dad who told you his wedding vows were meaningless i know it sounds confusing i said to someone who never met him he probably sounds like two different people From my experience, said Rupert, that's just what people are like. People are confusing and contradictory. We all have our internal conflicts. There are very few individuals in this world who legitimately practice what they preach 100% of the time. Okay, I said, I see your point. I don't think we should totally discount the idea that my dad's silly little secret was another woman. For all I know, he's a bigamist with a second family. It would explain why we hardly saw him. It would also explain why he disappeared. He had one too many families. Actually, I said, there's a bit later on in this recording where Claude says he knows of at least two members of the group who were having affairs and they agreed to keep it outside of the flat. Rupert pulled out a paper and pen to make some notes. So, two group members. Yes, but he didn't say which two. I remember when I was six, my dad told me he'd found out about Graham cheating on his wife. So, I'm guessing Graham's one of the two. Anyone else we know of? Or shall we assume the other person is your dad? Impossible to say, I said. I hardly know anything about the other people. What about Claude? As far as I know, Claude has no one to cheat on. And Peter Bennington? We know nothing about him, do we? Don't worry, said Rupert. We will track him down and we'll get our answers. Thanks, Rupert. I know we will. 
what shall we do now? I said. Rupert said something in response, but I didn't hear what he said. I was distracted by the sight of a series of email notifications on my computer screen, popping up one after another, all from Uncle Claude. I waited until the flurry of emails had come to an end before opening the first one up. Just some drawings of your dad that I found in the office a few years ago, said the message. I thought you might like to see them. I opened the attachment. My God, I said. I realised Rupert was still talking and I'd interrupted him. What? he said. Sorry, I said, I wasn't listening. Come and look at this. Rupert was excited as I was. Another map? he said, smiling. Well, not just one, I said. There must be 17 of them here. Someone really needs to tell Uncle Claude you can send more than one attachment per email. Anyway, I'm printing these off. I'd fully intended to spend the afternoon with Rupert properly analysing the details of a contract Claude had sent, but instead we spent the rest of the day examining and discussing my dad's pictures of nimble land. We had great fun. It was time well spent and very much in keeping with the investigation's aims. I wanted to find out who my dad really was, and that day, once we got past all the questions of who was sleeping with who and what my dad kept in his box, we found an answer to an entirely different question. My dad was the creator of Nimbleland. He didn't create it for me and Rupert, he created it for himself. It was my dad's world. It was good to forget all about that other stuff for a while. Chapter 17 I couldn't sleep that night. The questions were back in my head again. All that stuff Rupert brought up about my mum and dad's marriage wasn't really anything I considered before. This might sound strange considering the evidence, but, kidnapping aside, I rarely received the impression that my parents were unhappy. But clearly they weren't. I didn't necessarily want to know why they weren't, because it felt like none of my business. But there were questions that needed answering, and inevitably, that would mean going to visit my mum again. It would be better to drop by in the morning this time. I needed to get some sleep first. I'd had better sleep in prison. I went out for a walk, but instead of just pacing around the block and getting some fresh air in my lungs, I went off on a mission to find my dad's secret flat. After all, I knew roughly where the building was, based on the view from the window. It was half an hour's walk from my place. When I got there, even in the dark, I knew that if the sun was up, the park with the playground would be up there on the hillside in the distance. I wandered around for an hour or so, observing which building went where. There were three separate blocks of flats, each with eight or nine floors. There were no other buildings of that height in the area. I made note of the addresses. Each, in theory, had a clear view of the park from one side. In each case... I stood on the pavement below and peered up at the seven-floor windows, knowing in my heart that one of those windows was the window I looked out of every day 
while on holiday with my dad. And surely it wouldn't be long before me and Rupert had figured this whole thing out and I'd visit that flat again and look out of that window and maybe I'd see my mum again, sitting, looking sad on the swings. Later, as I lay in bed, I remembered a few more details about my childhood. There was definitely a time when my mum and dad got on well with each other. I remember them laughing and joking and used to wonder what they were talking about. They used to call me their little accident. It was obviously their private joke and they smirked at each other when they said it. Then when I got a bit older, I asked why they used to call me that. My mum just came out and said it. It means we never planned to have you, but here we are. It was a very matter-of-fact statement, and I don't think she meant it as an insult. Anyway, they carried on using the nickname until it started getting on my nerves as a teenager, and I told them to cut it out. Then I remembered something else. That smirk my dad had on his face when he used that nickname was the exact same expression he had when he swore to me that my mum was the only woman he'd ever been with. It was almost like this was a private joke of his too. But what was funny about that? Was he getting a kick out of lying to me or something? There was that feeling again. The feeling that I was missing out on something really obvious. If only I could figure out what it was. Chapter 18 After three or four hours sleep, I had a couple of cups of coffee, then headed over to my mum's house. As usual, Rupert hadn't been clear about when I'd see him again. It was best not to take him to my mum's house anyway. Although Rupert and Eggnog looked nothing alike, technically they had the exact same face, and my mum's an intelligent woman. There was no need to confuse things by blowing Noddy's cover. My mum greeted me at the door with a polite smile and invited me into the living room. What can I do for you? she said. I just had a few more questions, I said. Of course, your investigation. Her emphasis on the word seemed like an effort to avoid sarcasm. I was just a bit confused about some of the things you said last time, I said, especially that thing you said just before we left. You'll have to remind me. You said you and Dad weren't even married. You were just two people who happened to have the same name. What were you so angry about? She laughed dismissively. Oh, I don't remember saying that, she said. But please do ignore me. I say all sorts of ridiculous things. It really seemed to me like you meant it. My mum waved a ring finger at me. If I'd really meant it, I'd have taken this off a long time ago. Then I thought maybe you weren't just saying it because you were angry about something. Maybe the two of you never got married. I don't recall seeing any wedding photos. Your dad took all the photos when he left. Of what, your wedding? Well, admittedly, there weren't any wedding photos. It was a very low-key thing, Frank. Me, him, and a witness at the registry office, and that's it. Who was the witness? Never met the man before or since. He was an ice cream man on his lunch break. Your dad and I found that really funny at the time. 
I do remember the two of you laughing and joking a lot when I was a kid, I said. I was too young to understand any of it, then I grew up a bit, and it all seemed to stop. The two of you just seemed like strangers. Hmm, said my mum. Yes, I've almost forgotten about things being any other way. Your dad and I being anything other than two people who had a child together and slept under the same roof. You slept in different parts of the house, right? That was always the case. We both like our own space. I can't stand sharing a bed. When did the sex stop? I said, sorry to ask. My mum hooted with laughter. <laughs> Goodness, Brack. Why is that important? It's not, I suppose. It just seems like everyone's covering up for my dad for some reason. No one's really telling me anything. And the most obvious explanation is he was having an affair. Do you think that's likely? I'd be astonished if he wasn't, said my mum. And you were okay with that? She shrugged. Your dad's his own person, Frank. Always has been. You're not angry about it? I have very little to be angry about. So what are you angry about? What's this very little that you're referring to? Just minor things, bad habits. Collecting all this junk and leaving it all behind. Buying milk and bread on his way home from work when we already had too much of it in the house. Otherwise, I really have no axe to grind. Are you sure I can't help out with all the junk? I said. I can hire a skip or something. Me and Eggnog could clear this place out in a day. You'd need more than a skip, she said. We could rent a truck. I appreciate the offer, but no thanks. It's a matter of principle. He can come back and clear it himself. Would you like a drink, by the way? I'm okay, I said. I'll be off in a minute. I have some other things to sort out. Just one other thing I was wondering about. Ask me in a minute, said my mum. She jumped to her feet and ran off to the kitchen, returning a moment later with a large glass of gin in one hand and the remainder of the bottle in the other. She sat back in her armchair, taking a large swig. You were saying... You said you're pretty sure my dad was having an affair, I said. Do you have any idea who it might have been with? Absolutely no idea. It's his business. Were you having one yourself, I said casually. My mum grinned and raised her glass. I have everything I need right here, she said. I couldn't help glancing at my watch. You don't need to do that, she said. I'm aware that it's nine in the morning and hard liquor is one of those things you're not supposed to do at this time of day. But the truth is I don't much care for society's expectations. It's probably not all that healthy, I said. It's a bad habit, I'll admit that, my mum said. And it'll knock a few years off my life. But please don't get the wrong impression. I don't drink because I'm unhappy. I drink because I absolutely love a glass of gin. It's really none of my business, I said. It's fine, Frank. I don't mind you being concerned. And I don't mind you asking questions. I just thought of another answer, actually. There is something. I'm angry about. But I'm not angry with your dad. I'm angry with me.
How come? He didn't spend a great deal of time with you as a child, she said. And I was angry about that for a long time. But I realize now it's not because he didn't want to. It's because I wouldn't let him. I had this idea that he was completely incapable of looking after you. And that's because he was. But he could have been a better father. He had the potential within him. But I wouldn't allow him to do that. And I regret that now. That's all. Thanks for saying that, I said. I appreciate your honesty. Don't get me wrong, she said. It doesn't keep me awake at night. It's a mild regret. The major regret is meeting him in the first place, agreeing to have his child. You probably don't want to hear this, Frank, but what does keep me awake at night is how much better my life could have been if you'd never been born, if I didn't have to spend 18 years caring for your father's child. 18 years that changed me in ways it's impossible to properly explain. If I'd never met your dad, I could have done anything, been anyone. Instead, I was Frank Burton's wife and Frank Burton's mother. Everything I did over the course of those 18 years, I did because I was Frank Burton's wife and Frank Burton's mother. That was everything I am. I spent so much time defining myself based on those two roles. I have no idea how I am supposed to be me. So maybe that's why I drink. Maybe it's not because I absolutely love a glass of gin. Maybe it's because I have nothing better to do because I've never been allowed to do anything better. Oh. Oh, yes, exactly. I mean, I'm sorry to hear that you feel that way. I lied to you earlier, by the way, she said. I remember the exact moment your dad and I stopped laughing and joking together. It's the incident we talked about recently. You were six years old and he'd taken you to the betting shop instead of the park as he'd promised. And I knew that's what he was going to do because he specifically instructed me to stay away from town. Come to think of it, it's amazing that he managed to successfully pull off an extramarital affair. He was a terrible liar. Anyway, I decided to call the betting shop and catch him in the act, so that's what I did. I phoned the shop and the manager confirmed your dad was there. He put him on the line and he was showing off in front of his idiot friends. I remember it, I said. Like I said the other day, I remember it very clearly. You remember what he said? Word for word. Go on, she said. Okay, I said. He said, it's a perfectly safe environment for a young boy. Stop stressing about it, darling. If he dies, I'll buy you a Cadbury's cream egg. Well remembered, she said, although I remember it as Marathon Bar. What's that, I said. Oh, they changed the name to Snickers a couple of years later. They went with the American name. I'm really sure it was Cream Egg, I said. I'd say your memory's playing tricks on you, she said. 
No one mentions marathon bars anymore, so subconsciously you've changed it to something still commercially available, unless I'm the one who's misremembering. So that was really it, I said. That was the moment your marriage broke down. I think our marriage had its problems before that, she said. But yes, that was the specific moment in time when your dad made a joke that I didn't find funny. And I realized that's what it was. It was a joke. But this time, it was at my expense. He may have been showing off in front of his friends, but it revealed something about what he thought of me, about how much I was worth. And it turns out I was only worth the price of a chocolate bar. Funny you should say that, I said. I didn't think of you as being the boss of the joke, the cream egg or the marathon or whatever. That's what he was setting as the value of my life. I didn't think of it as a reflection of your relationship. Hmm, she said. I see what you mean. Come to think of it, if I'm not the butt of the joke, it's actually quite funny. It's a good joke, I agreed. Brutal, but maybe that's the point. We sat in silence for a while. Do you think this is what he intended by disappearing, I said. Did he do it because he liked the idea of people sitting around talking about him, trying to figure him out? I wouldn't be surprised. Looks like he got what he wanted. Perhaps, said my mum. There's a first time for everything. What do you mean? Oh, well, I don't mean your dad never got what he wanted. Sometimes he did, but mostly he didn't know what he wanted. If I could summarise your dad's life in a single sentence, there you have it. He's a man who doesn't know what he wants. And so he plods along, getting on with things, trying this out and that, but nothing really makes him happy. And then one day he disappears and no one knows why. But our best guess is he's finally realised he doesn't know what he wants. And the only way to figure it out is to start again from square one. Is that what you think he did, I said, started from scratch? Either that or he jumped off a bridge in the middle of the night and his body was washed away by morning. If it's a choice between the two, I'd rather imagine that he's out there somewhere and he's finally found whatever he was looking for. What do you think he was looking for? I don't know, said my mum. Whatever it was, it wasn't here. And it wasn't in that flat of his either. I still like to go there, I said. I'd give you the address if I had it. It's okay. I'm meeting one of the guys from the flat in a couple of days. His name's Graham. He's away on business at the moment. Well, hopefully Graham will be helpful. You've been helpful too, Mum. Thanks. Chapter 19 Later that day, I had a quick text exchange with Graham confirming our meeting for Wednesday lunchtime in a local pub. I was trying to keep things as casual as possible, crafting an archetypal tale of a son searching for his long-lost father. This approach appeared to be working until Graham texted, 
I've been told I'm not supposed to be talking to you. Olaf seems to be very concerned about all of this. Good job I've never been one to bow down to peer pressure. I liked Graham already. I was really tempted to phone him and get our conversation done that way, but resisted the urge. He'd agreed to a sit-down meeting, which was more than could be said for Olaf. Once we'd confirmed the place and time, there was one question I couldn't resist asking in advance. I texted, Does the name Peter Bennington mean anything to you? To my surprise, Graham texted back, LOL. This was 2006, and I didn't yet know what that expression meant. I assumed it was some kind of coded message, but if that was the case, I'd prefer just to wait until Wednesday rather than spend hours trying to figure it out. Rupert arrived at my door in the early afternoon, looking rather pleased with himself. I sent you an email, he said. What about? I said. Just take a look, said Rupert. I sat down at my desk and booted up the PC. Yes, this is what people used to have to do if they wanted to read their emails. Perhaps in years to come someone will listen to this and wonder what an email is and why I needed to go to the trouble of turning on my computer in order to access it. And perhaps I'm not going to explain things for you here. Perhaps you can look it up using whatever system you have in the future to find out bits of information. Right. I spoke to my mum again this morning, I said, while we waited for the machine to turn itself on. Went round there. It's useful hearing her point of view while she's still sober. What did she say? Well, it turns out you were onto something. She's pretty convinced my dad was having an affair, although she's no idea who with. Also, I managed to pinpoint the exact moment when their marriage started breaking down. Believe it or not, it was that day he took me to the betting shop. Turns out, it wasn't just a significant day for me, it was the day things changed between the two of them. It had been rocky before that with the kidnapping and everything. She'd given him another chance and by taking me to the betting shop, it was like he'd thrown it back in her face. Good stuff, Frank. Well, you know what I mean. I do know what you mean, I said. It is good stuff. I clicked on Rupert's email and opened up the attachment. A photo of a sheet of lined paper with what seemed to be a series of coded messages scribbled on them. It was mostly numbers, accompanied by dashes and abbreviations such as BB, NBA and PL, with occasional plus, minus and percentage symbols. I recognised the handwriting when I saw it, said Rupert. It's very similar to your Uncle Claude's, but... It's my dad's, I said, not taking my eyes off the screen. I thought so. Where did you get this? Rupert smiled and polished an imaginary medal on his lapel. I told you about my contact. This is from Olaf's phone from the bottom of the river. I told you my contact was a good one. To be fair, this was the only useful thing we could retrieve. There were a few snaps of Olaf's grandkids, which I didn't include here, plus a couple of inconsequential email messages. You can get email on a phone now, I said. Sure, 
feels like we were in prison for longer than I thought. Everyone's talking about this Facebook thing, whatever that is. Oh, that's going to prove useful for us as well. But first things first, we have this picture. What is it though? What does it mean? Remember what Olaf said about your dad having a plan? I think this is it. It's gibberish. Look closer. I don't know for sure, but it seems to be some kind of system your dad had worked out for sports betting. How can you tell? Look at the letters NBA, that's basketball. PL, I would guess, will be Premier League. F1's obviously motor racing. Why would Olaf have a copy of this? I know my dad was trying to beat the bookies. He'd been at it for years. But why would he share a copy with a betting shop manager unless they were in it together? That's plausible. You know what? I said, I think it's time to get tough with Olaf. I like the sound of that, said Rupert. What did you have in mind? Well, I'll send this to him, let him know that we have it. I'll ask him to explain himself. You have his email address, right? Yes, I've made a note of it. Rupert clicked open his briefcase and handed me a slip of paper with Olaf's details on. Without another thought, I typed in the address, attached the photo and wrote a simple request in the subject header, Explain yourself. I clicked send. What now? I said. I have a feeling we won't have long to wait, said Rupert. Time to put the kettle on? Just about. How does Rupert like his tea? I'm a coffee drinker. White, no sugar, thanks. In the kitchen, I received a text message from Graham. The message read, I just got a text from Olaf saying, Do not under any circumstances speak to Frank Burton Jr. Now I really can't wait for our meeting on Wednesday. LOL. I already liked Graham, now I was starting to love him. I brought the coffee through to Rupert and was all ready to share the text with him when the phone rang. I answered with it on speaker so Rupert could hear. Hello, I said. You have one minute before I hang up this phone, said Olaf. The phone's going down the toilet this time. I really don't think destroying your brand new phone is the answer to anything, I said. You are wasting your minute. Okay, let's get on with this. That note is my dad's formula for sports bets, right? So how come you have a copy of it? It's an early draft, said Olaf. Look at the date on the photo. It's from 2001, three years before he went missing. Your dad wanted my advice. When I retired from the betting shop... He started to think of me as an impartial expert on this sort of thing. I told him I'm not really qualified to judge whether this so-called system will work or not. I've always been of the opinion that there is no real way of cheating the system. The system is designed to ensure customers lose more than they win, but they win just enough to keep them coming back for more. I told him he ought to consult a mathematician, Someone who specialises in stats and probability. I don't know if he took that advice or not, but what I do know is 
He was really serious about this. Your dad had a very single-minded vision that one day he would make his millions from sports bets. Do you think that's why he disappeared? Without a doubt, yes, I do. As I say, I'm not an expert, but I think at some point in 2004, your dad finally cracked it. He liked that expression, by the way. He used to use it all the time. I think I finally cracked it, Olaf, he'd say. I'm still fascinated by the quirks of the English language, but anyway, yes, it's my firm belief that your dad finally figured out how to make money from gambling, and that's why he vanished. And that's why he can't be traced, because anyone can walk into a betting shop with £100 in cash and walk out with £500 in cash with no credit card transactions. No one will ever know that person was there. He can do this several times a day in whatever town he happens to be in. He can live in hotels. He can pay for everything in cash. The rest of his life will be one big, long, extended holiday. And he doesn't even need to go to the trouble of changing his identity or getting himself a fake passport. Because if you can make a living from gambling, you can jump right off the grid. You don't even have to declare your earnings to the taxman. Seriously, it's classed as a leisure activity. Even if it's hundreds of thousands of pounds. Trust me, I know there's a whole bunch of loopholes through which corporations can legally avoid taxation, but there's only one occupation in this country which is legally 100% tax-free, and that's professional gambler. As far as I know, your dad never broke the law in his life, and strictly speaking, even though he was a subject of a police investigation, he still hasn't. He's within his rights to move somewhere else without telling anyone. I realise this has taken more than a minute for me to explain. Fine by me, I said. I appreciate your honesty. You could have just ignored my message. In all fairness, said Olaf, I think perhaps I overreacted. Perhaps we got off on the wrong foot. It's all this business with the flats and everything. My wife doesn't know about it, you see, and I'd very much like to keep things that way. I have absolutely no intention of telling your wife about that flat, I said. This is all about my old man. Plus, said Olaf, there are various other things your dad was very keen on keeping quiet about, but those things are nothing to do with his disappearance. The flat is nothing to do with his disappearance. As I say, he disappeared because he figured out a way of jumping off the grid. That's his expression again, by the way. He used to talk about it in addition to doing that aeroplane sound effect. He used to talk about jumping off the grid. And my English wasn't quite up to scratch at that point, so I had no real understanding of what jumping off the grid meant. I understand it properly now. This all seemed to be going well, so I thought I might as well ask. What about Peter Bennington? Who? I asked about him last time. You confirmed he was one of the tenants of this flat of yours. Well, he isn't anymore, so I don't see why that's relevant to anything. I'm just interested to know why everyone's so cagey about him. I have nothing to say about Peter Bennington, or indeed any other tenants of that flat. Think of the flat as the meeting place for a top-secret organisation. The only difference is they don't all meet there at the same time. The flat is our little secret, Frank. Let us have 
our little secret. Okay, I said, I won't ask you any more questions about the flat. I'll keep hold of your number, though, in case anything new crops up. You're not really going to flush it down the toilet, are you? No, said Ola. I'd better keep hold of this one. It was hard enough concocting a story about how I managed to lose the other one. Okay, if you don't mind me asking one more flat-related question, I said. I do, said Olaf. Your wife really doesn't know anything about it. Absolutely not. I'm just curious as to how and why you've pulled this off. You've managed to buy a flat without telling your wife about it, and you've successfully hidden it from her for over 20 years. Yes, said Olaf. Impressive, isn't it? But I'm afraid... I won't be telling you how or indeed why. Just thought I'd ask. Nice talking to you, Frank. Likewise. I stuck the phone back into my pocket, sat down at my desk and put my feet up. Well, I said, that was interesting. Very much so, said Rupert. You know what? I like this getting tough thing. It's getting the answers that we want. I'm going to do something. I clicked back into my emails. What are you going to do? said Rupert. I'll do it before I tell you. Then you can tell me I was wrong if you like. Hurriedly, I wrote a reply to the most recent message from Uncle Claude. I wrote, I have hired a solicitor and he's examined your contract. I think you and I should sit down with him and figure out what you can and can't tell me. Please get back to me ASAP. All it will take is one quick chat with Olaf's wife and that flat will be up for sale quicker than a DFS sofa. I pressed send, then told Rupert what I'd written. He laughed. Excellent, he said. DFS sofa, that's a good one. <laughs> I'll have to remember that. Yeah, I just thought of that straight off the bat. I said, I guess when you're being a tough guy, these things just come out. My phone beeped again. It was Graham. He said, Olaf texted again. I don't know what you said to him, but he's changed his tune. He said, Frank Burton Jr. is an honourable young man and you should do what you can to help him. But do not speak to him about the flat. LOL. What does LOL mean? I said. Oh, it's what they call text speak said Rupert. Stands for lots of love, I believe. That's weird, I said. Oh well. After giving it some thought, I texted back. LOL to you too. Chapter 20 It was finally Wednesday lunchtime. We arrived at the pub early. Rupert positioned himself at a nearby table and pretended not to know me. We decided it was best not to have Rupert directly involved in the conversation. His presence would have made the meeting feel a bit too official and the last thing I wanted to do was scare Graham off. I got the distinct impression he was on our side anyway, but that assumption was purely based on a handful of texts. So Rupert was there to step in if he needed to. I was a little bit nervous, which perhaps caused me to drink a bit quicker than I usually would. 
I was already stuck into my third pint of cider when Graham arrived, bang on twelve o'clock. He recognised me immediately. Frank, he greeted, rushing across the carpet to shake my hand. Christ, I could almost be talking directly to your old man from twenty-odd years ago. You're an absolute spit. I smiled back. That's what everyone says. Can I get you a drink? He said. I'm sorted, thanks. I'll get another one lined up. What are you on? Strongbow, thanks. Suddenly, I felt very drunk. I hadn't touched alcohol since before I went to prison. I was going to have to get used to it again for situations like these. Graham returned with a pair of pints. He slapped mine down on the table in front of me and took a big slurp from his own glass. This is a life, he said. Thanks for meeting up with me, I said. More than happy to do it, said Graham. Your dad and myself go way back. As it happens, I was really upset when I heard about him vanishing. I was worried sick, but I couldn't do anything about it. The police were asking questions, but there wasn't anything useful I could tell them. Did you tell them about the flat? I said. Graham flashed a cheeky grin. Come on, mate. You know I can't tell you about that. Oh, laughs a funny one, isn't he? I just can't believe he's been hiding it from his wife for 20 plus years, I said. Haven't we all? said Graham. What, you too? I said. Graham nodded. You're still a member of the group? Absolutely. I can't even begin to explain how much of a lifesaver that place has been for me. In a way, it's a shame my wife doesn't know about it, because that place has completely saved our marriage. If I didn't have that place to escape to whenever I wanted, I'd end up taking my frustrations out on her. It's funny you should say that, I said. Marriage was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. I was talking to my Uncle Claude about the flat. Remember I can't talk about the flat, Graham winked. This isn't really about the flat, it's about the people who went there. You see, my mum's convinced that my dad was having an affair. And Uncle Claude said there were at least two people who were cheating on their partners. So obviously you were one of them. You what? said Graham. I hiccuped violently. What? I said. What did you say? I don't know. Christ, how much have you had to drink? I'm sorry, Graham. I didn't realise it was a sensitive subject. You didn't realise it was a sensitive subject? Graham hissed. How the hell did you know about that? No one knows. Claude certainly doesn't. How do you know? My dad told me. He wouldn't do that. He was the only other person who knew besides myself and the woman concerned and it ended a long, long time ago, by the way. I'm not questioning that, I said. I really do get the impression you're firmly committed to your wife. Your dad swore to me he'd never tell another living soul, he said. He swore on your mum's life and on your life as well. I don't know how to say this, I said, but it turns out my dad's not the most trustworthy of people. Graham drained the rest of his glass and jumped to his feet. I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. With that, he marched out of the room. I was frozen to the spot, completely incapable of running after him. It's lucky I brought a friend with me. Rupert leapt out from behind his newspaper and ran out into the car park. Conveniently from where I sat, I could hear them through the window. 
Excuse me, Graham, is it? Graham stopped and turned. Yeah? I couldn't help overhearing your conversation, said Rupert. You don't know me, and neither does that young man in there, but I'm a solicitor. My name is Rupert Pilcher. This is my card. I'll be honest, my ears pricked up when I heard you talking because I've been taking a professional interest in this case. What case? said Graham. Your friend who went missing, Frank Burton? Was that his son you were speaking to? It was. I'd like to help. From what I've gathered, the authorities did a shoddy job, cutting corners at every opportunity. But I do think we can find him. Really? If we were to sit down and discuss things, me, you and that young man in there. Well, that young man just crossed the line. So I heard. From what I understand, Frank Senior had a history of crossing lines too, like father, like son, perhaps. He did have a big mouth, but he was a good man. Perhaps his son is the same? Well, said Graham, I suppose he's... Well, I've never met him before, but I've heard him described as an honourable man. That's encouraging. Perhaps we could approach him together, see what information we can obtain? What's in this for you? said Graham. Absolutely nothing, financially speaking, said Rupert. You have my word on that. I see this as a matter of civic duty. Are you sure you're a solicitor? Look me up online, said Rupert. Harrow Associates. Oh, I'm not questioning your credentials, said Graham. I've just never heard a solicitor use the expression civic duty without an invoice attached. Rupert chuckled softly. Uh First time for everything, as they say. They stopped talking. I was expecting them to return to the pub, but they didn't. I stuck my head out of the window. They weren't there. I realised I was hanging half in and half out of the window. If I were to lean out any further, I'd slam my head straight into the concrete below. With considerable effort, I managed to clamber back inside. I dropped back breathlessly into my seat. Graham and Rupert were sitting opposite me at the table. Hello, said Rupert. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Rupert Pilcher. I work for a firm of solicitors called Harrow Associates, but at present I'm off duty and have no intention of becoming on duty any time soon. Hello, I said, shaking his hand. Frank Burton, uh, currently unemployed. I'm very, very sorry I've had a little too much to drink. In actual fact... It's been almost a year since I touched a drop of alcohol, and as the song says, it's gone right to my head. Thanks for coming back, Graham. That's okay, said Graham. Maybe we got off on the wrong foot. I seem to have a habit of doing that. Graham's cheeky grin returned, which put me all at ease. Where were we? I said. Well, Mr Burton, said Rupert, I couldn't help overhearing your conversation earlier, and perhaps it would be useful to resume your line of questioning, but without referring to any sensitive aspects of our friend's personal life. 
Remind me what my line of questioning was again. Your mother believes your father was having an affair. Right, I said. And he's probably told you not to tell anyone about it, right, Graham? That was our understanding, yes. But things have changed since then. He's disappeared from everyone's life. He may well be dead. All I want to do is find out more about the father I never knew. I see where you're coming from, said Graham. But what's holding me back from telling you has absolutely nothing to do with loyalty to your dad. He's already proven himself to be disloyal, firstly by vanishing off the face of the earth, and secondly, as I'm beginning to realise, there really is only one way you could have known about me cheating on my wife all those years ago. So what's holding you back? I said. I don't know, said Graham. Maybe you don't want to know. Maybe you're better off not knowing. Whatever the truth is, I said, I can handle it. I don't care enough about my dad to be shocked or disappointed by anything you reveal about him. I just want to know what everyone's been hiding. Graham peered into his half-empty glass. Also, it's a bit weird hearing all of this from a total stranger. I don't think of you as a stranger, I said. I think of you as my dad's friend Graham. I've known about you since I was six years old. I went to that flat and I saw all the names on the pinboard. I made up a song about them, but I'm trying my best to be sober, so I won't sing it to you now. You can imagine it for yourself. Okay, said Graham, still not looking up at me. We sat in silence for a while. Then I added, and seeing as both of your names are listed on there, I presume you know who Peter Bennington is. No one seems to want to talk about him. Graham, for some reason, thought this was hilarious. He almost choked on his pint. What's so funny? (laughs) I'm sorry, he chuckled. It's just that you clearly have got all the evidence and you still haven't figured it out. Isn't it obvious? No, I said. There's a man named Peter Bennington who no one wants to talk about, right? Yes. Your Uncle Claude has informed you that at least two members of the group were having extramarital affairs. Yes. Your mum is convinced that your dad was having an affair. Yes. And Peter Bennington, the man who no one wants to talk about, was a member of the group and so was your dad. I don't understand what you're trying to say, I said. Isn't it obvious? No. Your dad was gay, Frank. Instinctively, I took a large gulp of cider. Then I took another and another. Then I slammed the empty glass down on the table. This is absolutely ridiculous, I said. Again, I'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you this. I don't mean it's ridiculous that he's gay, I said. I mean, it's perfectly obvious now you've pointed it out. I just think it's ridiculous that everyone's been hiding the fact like he's a serial killer or something. Who cares if he had an affair with a man or a woman? It makes no difference whatsoever. I don't think you're taking on board what I'm trying to tell you, said Graham. This is a big thing for you to be finding out about. For one thing, it means your parents' relationship isn't what you thought it was. It's exactly what I thought it was, I said. It explains my parents' relationship. If someone had told me this years ago, or better still, from the very beginning, it would have saved me a lot of hassle. Frank, said Graham, I think you just need to take a moment to let this all sink in. 
what, because it's such a huge tragedy? No one's calling it that. What I'm saying is, I don't think you're angry with me or any of your dad's mates. You're angry with your dad for not telling you. You're angry because he should have been honest about who he was from the start. But bear in mind, if he'd been honest about who he was from the start, you'd have never been born. I don't think you can put a positive spin on homophobia, I said. Is that what I'm doing? said Graham. Yes, I said, that's exactly what you're doing. What is wrong with your generation? My what? You're a strange bunch of people, that's all I'm saying. Bigotry and puns. Puns and bigotry. I know you're all individuals and you're all unique as people, but as a group, you really need to pull your socks up. Then Rupert, who'd been quietly observing the conversation for some time, to the extent that I'd forgotten he was there in the first place, said, Mr Burton, I think what Graham is trying to say is that keeping a person's sexuality a secret isn't necessarily anything to do with homophobia. It's a personal choice. None of that group had a problem with your dad's sexuality, said Graham. Everyone knew about it. What's also worth pointing out, added Rupert, is that much of the anti-discrimination legislation that's appeared in recent years would never have emerged were it not for the work of activists and campaigners, many of whom are members of the generation you see sitting in front of you. Although, you're absolutely spot on about the puns. We really can't get enough of them. I'm not having a go at you guys, I said. I'm probably just talking nonsense. It's okay, said Graham. I understand. You've had a big piece of news and you're not sure how you're supposed to react. I was all ready to tell him he was wrong but stopped myself at the last second. I suppose I've got some things to think about, I said quietly. I'd be happy to meet again, said Graham, when you've had a chance to process it all. Hmm, I said. Process, yeah. But perhaps, said Rupert... There might be something else Graham can help you with today. Funny you should say that, Mr Pilcher, I said. I was hoping Graham might be able to shed some light on my dad's gambling schemes. According to Olaf, my dad was trying to figure out some kind of betting system. Graham grinned. Weren't we all? He said. That's exactly what I'd be doing now if I hadn't given it up. But apparently my dad was convinced he was on the verge of making the big books. Of course he was, so was I. He's been saying it for years. It's what I used to say too. I used to reckon there was some secret formula I could tap my way into. As a matter of fact, it was probably encouragement from your dad that led to my gambling turning from a hobby into a destructive pattern of behaviour. A lot of my tactics were just superstitious nonsense. Like I always seem to win if I place the bet on a Tuesday afternoon. And if I happen to lose on a Tuesday afternoon, it's because I was wearing the wrong colour socks. Your dad helped me to understand that there are far more scientific ways of winning. And after that, I won a lot more. But also, I lost a lot more. But whenever I lost, instead of recognising the loss as evidence my approach wasn't working, I treated it like it was all part of the learning curve. Your dad used to say that a lot. That's how I ended up maxing out several credit cards, taking out loans against my house, all of that stuff. Oh no, I said. It's okay, he said. Turns out your dad was right. It was indeed part of the learning curve, the lesson being, don't gamble. 
It wasn't an easy lesson to learn. I'm still attending meetings because of it. And thank God for those meetings. I'm a lot happier and a lot more financially stable. When did you give up? I said. 1999. That must be five years before your dad went missing. I used to see him all the time, but after I stopped gambling, we only crossed paths now and again. Occasionally, we'd meet up for a drink, or we'd end up talking on the phone, organising the rotor for the flat or whatever. So, things were still okay between the two of you? They always were. I didn't blame your dad for my gambling problems. It was entirely my own fault. So when you did gamble, you'd do it together? You'd bet on the same things? No, your dad never told anyone what he was betting on. He always bragged about the wins afterwards, but never mentioned the losses. So no one ever knew how much he was spending, or indeed how much money he made. Maybe he lost even more than I did, but he kept coming back for more. That's interesting, I said. What do you know about your dad's finances? said Rupert. Absolutely nothing, I said. They owned their own house, paid off the mortgage a couple of years before he vanished. My mum's never had a job that I know of, so presumably my dad was paying for it all. How does your mum pay the bills now your dad's salary isn't there? No idea. I get the impression she lives quite a basic lifestyle. Is it possible he was in debt when he left? Could that be a reason for disappearing? If that were the case, wouldn't my mum be liable to pay? She hasn't mentioned anything like that. What if the loan wasn't strictly legal? said Rupert. If that were the case, we'd definitely know about it, said Graham. I've heard some horror stories from my support group about gamblers dealing with loan sharks. A threatening letter from a bank is hassle enough, but these people deal in death threats. Yeah, she definitely would have mentioned that, I said. Anyway, said Graham, despite his secrecy, I genuinely got the impression that your dad was very good at gambling. Sensible, anyway. He didn't make reckless choices. He knew there was no such thing as a dead cert. He knew all this talk about going with your gut was superstitious nonsense. He approached the bookies like a businessman, while everyone else around him treated it like a church. Wow, good line. Yeah, I came up with that a few years ago. Your dad liked it too. I said that to him once, word for word. You approach the bookies like a businessman, while everyone else around you treats it like a church. He loved it. He said, yes, Graham, that's exactly what it's like. And you know what? One day I won't be the businessman. One day I'll be the priest and the prophet. Right, I said. I was with you right up until that phrase, priest and the prophet. What does that mean? Well, presumably, he was saying that one day he'll get so good, it'll be almost as though he can see into the future. So what spelling is that? P-R-O-P-H-E-T? Or P-R-O-F-I-T. Maybe both, said Graham. You said so yourself. Say whatever you like about men of our age, but we love a good pun. We laughed and clinked our glasses together. Later, I went home and slept for the rest of the day. Thanks for listening. This audiobook can be downloaded as an album from frankburton.bandcamp.com and why not further details are on my website frankburton.co.uk watch out for parts four and five what's going to happen wait and see once again please purchase a paperback copy of everything i am from amazon 
and give it to someone you love. Tell them Frank Burton said you have to read this and be part of the Ragbag Alliance. We're expanding, expanding throughout the world. <laughs> See you soon. Podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow Britpod Scene on Twitter to find out more. Oh.